Hello, listeners. This is Iris, and you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 23rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at the weather forecast first thing, this one coming from KCRG. A secondary push of chillier conditions will be on the way today, accompanied by clouds and a slim chance for light precipitation. Temperatures are already a little cooler in most spots this morning, with readings starting out in the 20s and 30s. Wind chills could dip as low as the upper 10s in some spots, so it will be a morning to dress warmly as you head out. Lots of sunshine will be present early on, but eventually more clouds start to fill in from the north. These will be along the cold front moving through the area today. Winds will turn a bit more blustery as it passes, giving an extra chill to the air. Highs will range from the low 40s north to where the front clears first to the low 50s in the south where it won't arrive until evening. Along the path of a compact area of low pressure to our northeast, some areas of rain or snow could develop. While most of this precipitation looks to stay just to the east of the area, some of it could affect our far eastern counties along the Mississippi River. The precipitation should stay pretty light, so impacts should be somewhat limited. A sprinkle or a flurry can't be totally ruled out for areas farther west, though the chance is fairly slight there. Clearer skies return tonight, with a bit of a northerly breeze continuing. Temperatures should drop pretty well as a result, with the lows into the upper 10s or around 20. Wind chills could be in the single digits above zero to start off Saturday. Ample sunshine will help warm things up a decent amount by the afternoon on Saturday, with highs reaching the low to mid-40s. A switch to a southerly breeze takes place during the day Saturday, which will also help the potential for warmer weather a bit. It will also set up a warmer finish to the weekend, with lows in the 30s and the highs back into the mid-50s to around 60 on Sunday. This is just the start of a warming trend, with record highs possible on Monday and Tuesday, as readings head for the upper 60s to low 70s in some spots. The warmth comes with a more active set of days, too, with occasional chances for precipitation mixed in. The first chance arrives as early as Monday night, when some isolated showers or storms could develop. Another round of a few storms or showers is possible later on Tuesday next week. Precipitation that starts with rain on Tuesday night could start to change to snow as sharply colder air quickly moves in behind a cold front, with some areas of light snow possible on Wednesday. This will be a time period to watch, for sure, with a variety of weather impacts possible. Fairly strong winds outside of any precipitation and the possibility for some stronger storms or even some light accumulations of snow. With the system still being a handful of days away, some details could still change and the resultant impacts for the area. As far as the risk for severe weather during this period, latest trends in the data we use to help make our forecasts indicates a potentially faster progression of this system. At this time, that would place the highest 
risk for severe storms just to our east and south, more toward Missouri and Illinois. Temperatures turn cooler for the middle of next week before a pretty substantial warm-up once again. Highs will return to the 50s and 60s by the end of the work week and the start of the weekend. Now, turning to the front page of the Courier's Internet Edition, we have two stories to read. The first is titled, AEA Bill Gets Input at Hearing. Parents, Superintendents, Weigh In on House Legislation. Story written by Caleb McCullough of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau and begins with a photograph of community members sitting on the floor and standing near the walls at an overflow room to watch the AEA hearing at the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines on Wednesday. Dateline Des Moines. Parents of students with disabilities, superintendents, and educators had another chance to weigh in on a bill to change the funding and oversight structure of Iowa's area education agencies during an Iowa House public hearing on Wednesday. Several parents said they were worried the changes to Iowa's network that provide support for special education in the state and other services would weaken the options for their children. Some school superintendents, though, said the bill would give them more flexibility over their special education dollars and provide accountability for the AEAs. Esther Huston of West Des Moines said she has a child who uses AEA services, said increasing funding to schools and AEAs would be a better way to address Iowa's education issues. Quote, why are we here, she said. Why are we trying to fix something that's not broken? It's not broken. If anything, you need to fix the funding issues that my kid can't get services readily because you don't fund them, unquote. What does the bill do? Iowa's nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. The services are largely funded by property taxes and federal special education dollars. House File 2612 would allow schools to retain the state funding that now goes to the AEAs for special education, media, and other services, beginning in the 2025-26 school year. It would also bring much of the oversight of AEAs under the Department of Education. House Republicans proposed the legislation after blocking a bill proposed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds early in the session, which would have made more dramatic changes to the agencies. Reynolds said the bill was necessary to address lagging test scores for students with disabilities in Iowa. Under the House bill, districts would have to use the special education funds with the AEAs, but they could spend the other dollars with the AEAs or with another party, like a private company. It differs significantly from Reynolds' original proposal, which would have allowed districts to spend special education dollars outside the AEAs. The Senate version of the bill, which has passed out of a committee, contains a similar provision. Beyond funding changes, the House bill would bring the AEAs under the Department of Education 
and create a new state division of special education to oversee them. The division would be staffed with 58 new state employees who would handle oversight and federal and state compliance for educating students with disabilities. The bill would move the AEA's governing boards to an advisory capacity and require the state approval of AEA budgets. The salary for AEA administrators would be capped at the average salary of all superintendents in the district served by the AEA. The bill would also establish a 10-member task force to study the AEAs led by the legislative leaders of both parties. The group would assess and make recommendations related to the property owned by the AEAs, the services they provide, the accountability and oversight measures in place, the organizational structure of special education in Iowa, and a timeline for staffing modifications at the AEAs. The bill passed out of a committee last week with Republicans in support and Democrats opposed and is eligible for a vote by the full House chamber. Vital service provided. Though the bill would still require schools to use the AEAs for special education support, parents of students who spoke during the hearing told members of the House Education Committee they worried the changes would lead to inequities and worse outcomes across the state. David Tilley, who was Deputy Director of the Iowa Department of Education, from 2012 to 2020, said lawmakers should pause the advancement of the bill, which he said could place students' futures in jeopardy. Tilly, who has a daughter with a disability, said a parent learning their child has a disability is, quote, one of the most profound experiences of their lifetime. He said lawmakers should not take any changes without first commissioning a study of the AEAs. Quote, the only defensible course here is to study before making any changes to the AEAs, he said. Quote, Iowa kids are not a partisan issue. To be clear, a sufficient, credible study has not been done at this point to support any of the AEA bills, unquote. Other parents who supported the bill said they were dissatisfied with the services their school district and AEA were providing to their students with disabilities, and said they believed the bill could allow for more personalized attention to students with disabilities. Special Education Funds Several school superintendents spoke in favor of the bill, saying they would like to control the special education dollars dedicated to their students. The superintendents said the bill would allow them to keep track of their special education funding and have a better accounting of where the money is going. Ottumwa Community School District Superintendent Mike McGrory said AEAs are necessary and provide valuable services, and he does not want to see them dismantled. But he said the bill would give schools a seat at the table in determining what services their students need. Quote, our school districts should be equal parts in determining what the schools and students need, whether or not things are working or need to adapt, he said. It's time for reform. Some superintendents asked Iowa House lawmakers to return the bill to Reynolds's original proposal, allowing schools to spend their special education dollars outside the AEA to educate students with disabilities. 
David Smith, the superintendent of Spirit Lake Community School District, told lawmakers that the current system has not been working for the district. Quote, the system has been in place for a long time, and where we live, it doesn't work, he said. It hasn't worked, and we don't think it's going to work in the future, unquote. Mark Lane, the superintendent of Woodward Granger Community School District, opposed the bill and said he does not support the changes. While he acknowledged some things can change in the AEA systems, he said the pace of the changes without proper evaluation by stakeholders and experts is, quote, doomed to failure. More discussion planned. Representative Schuyler Wheeler, a Republican from Hull, who chairs the House Education Committee, said the input was consistent with what he heard in past meetings and said the House would, quote, continue to have conversations on the bill. Though the Senate has a different bill, Wheeler said he was focused on working on the House bill and building Republican support for the measure. Quote, My focus right now is on my caucus, making sure that whatever it is, if we come to an agreement on something, that we have the ability to get the votes for, he said. I don't know what the Senate is doing. We have conversations here and there, but they're going to focus on what they're going to focus on. We're going to focus on what we want to focus on over here, unquote. Representative Sue Cahill, a Democrat from Marshalltown, said she does not want to make big changes to the AEA based on complaints from certain school districts or individuals. She reiterated the call from Democrats to hold a study on the AEAs before making changes. Quote, the thing we need to keep in mind is the students, she said. We are now kind of talking about a lot of organizational issues. We can take care of that without disrupting the structure and the services that we provide to the students, unquote. Alternative proposal. Senate Republicans advanced a bill out of committee last week that more closely aligns with Governor's original proposal, allowing school districts to contract with outside entities to provide special education support. Under the bill, Senate File 2386, schools would receive 90% of their state special education funding, while the AEAs would receive the other 10%. The school districts could spend that money on the AEA services or contract with an outside party for the services. They could still have the legal obligation to educate students with disabilities. The bill would direct 60% of the funding for media services and education services, which are paid for by property taxes, to the school districts, who could then contract with the AEAs or another party for those services. The AEAs would retain the other 40% of the funding. It would also create a division of special education directing the Department of Education to work with the AEAs on a plan to transfer employees focused on oversight to the Department of Education. (laughs) Union truckers protest public employee recertification bill. Story written by Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. And it begins with a photograph of the state capitol building taken from the west side showing the gold dome and in the foreground is a semi-truck with a pulling a trailer that's 
decorated with Teamsters themes. And the caption says, A truck displaying Teamsters graphics passes the Iowa Capitol as part of a caravan as local labor union members protest proposed legislation that would impact public workers' collective bargaining rights at the Capitol in Des Moines on Wednesday. Dateline Des Moines. Truck and car horns blared as they drove laps Wednesday around the Iowa Capitol complex as union members and advocates rallied in opposition to a proposal that would impact Iowa public workers' collective bargaining rights. Two semis emblazoned with graphics for the Teamsters Union were a part of the caravan of at least two dozen vehicles that circled the complex for roughly an hour, and an Iowa Teamsters leader addressed reporters on the Capitol steps. The proposed legislation, Senate File 2374, would decertify a public worker collective bargaining unit if the public employer fails to submit to the state a list of union-eligible workers. Labor advocates have called it a union-busting bill because it places bargaining units' fate in the hands of the employer. Union members compare the proposal with the 2017 law that stripped Iowa public workers of most of their collective bargaining rights. Quote, when things aren't broke, don't fix it. Jesse Case, secretary-treasurer and principal officer of Teamsters Local 238 in Iowa, said during his remarks to reporters, quote, the public sector bargaining law wasn't broken in 2017, and they broke it, and now they want to break it some more. Well, guess what? We've had enough, unquote. The Teamsters Union has six local chapters in Iowa, Case said, representing roughly 12,000 members in law enforcement, freight, warehouses, county road crews, public works, and school bus drivers. Shortly after new legislation was introduced, Case recorded a video in which he said Teamsters unions may engage in rolling strikes. During Wednesday's events at the Iowa Capitol, Case said Teamsters members also are considering other options. Case claimed that some Teamsters members across the state have been working while technically off-duty, and as an example said some public workers are answering work calls even though they are off the clock and not on call. Case said if state lawmakers pass the latest legislation on collective bargaining, unions will tell those public workers, for example, to stop taking those off-duty calls. Quote, our members are not obligated to go above and beyond the call of duty while they're under attack from lawmakers, Case said. And I'm telling you right now, the next time that there's a union-busting bill signed into law, people across the state will start feeling the effects of service, unquote. The bill was introduced by Senator Adrian Dickey, a Republican who is president of a trucking company, Dickey Transport, in Packwood. Dickey said Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, who ran the bill through the first steps of legislative process, have said it's needed because many public bargaining unions are not submitting lists of union-eligible workers and thus not holding annual recertification elections, both of which are required by the 2017 law. 
From 2020 through 2022, the state did not receive information on union-eligible employees in more than 40% of instances in which a union was required to be recertified by a vote of its eligible workers, according to the Public Employment Relations Board, the state board that manages public employer-worker relations. That means in 40% of instances in which a union was required to be certified, no election was conducted, according to the board. Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines, and a lawyer, said that typically happens when the public employer is certain a bargaining unit would recertify, has a good working relationship with the unit and its workers, and thus does not feel compelled to force the election. Dickey, last year, also led the effort on legislation that limited damages in lawsuits related to crashes involving commercial truck drivers. Dickey said that bill also shifted liability in such crashes from commercial truck drivers to their employer. Quote, it's disappointing. I get no gratitude for providing real help to the Teamsters. And instead, I'm attacked for simply proposing public employers and unions follow the law, Dickey said in a statement emailed by Senate Republican caucus staff. SF 2374, quote, is nothing more than a technical cleanup to legislation passed in 2017, Dickey said in his statement. Quote, last year, 41% of Iowa public sector workers that had union representation did not have a voice due to a loophole in the legislation passed in 2017. If the public sector employer and the union are following the law, nothing will change for them, unquote. The legislation has cleared the Iowa Senate's Workforce Committee, which Dickey chairs. It is eligible for debate by the full Iowa Senate. It must also be approved by the Iowa House and signed by our Governor, Kim Reynolds, before it would become law. Representative Dave Deo, a Republican from Nevada who chairs the House's Labor and Workforce Committee, said lawmakers have been aware of the lack of recertification elections by bargaining units for years and that it has been a concern for Republicans who passed the 2017 law. Deo said it will be up to Republican House leaders whether to take up the bill if it's passed out of the Senate. Case said Teamsters members plan to continue their opposition to the legislation including by conducting similar caravans and news conferences in Dickey's district in southeast Iowa. Quote, we're not taking it anymore, Case said. This is the beginning of an escalation, and it either stops or it continues to escalate. But we're not going to do it laying down. We're standing up. We're fighting back. We're united. And this is just the beginning. Authorities in Las Vegas Arrest FBI source again. Former informant is accused of lying about Ukrainian bribery plot. The story comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Las Vegas. A former FBI informant who claims to have links to Russian intelligence and is charged with lying about a multi-million dollar bribery scheme involving President Joe Biden's family was again taken into custody Thursday in Las Vegas, 
Two days after a judge released him, his attorney said, Alexander Smirnov was arrested during a meeting Thursday morning at his lawyer's offices in downtown Las Vegas. The arrest came after prosecutors appealed the judge's ruling allowing Smirnov, 43, who holds dual U.S.-Israeli citizenship, to be released with a GPS monitor ahead of the trial. He is charged with making a false statement and creating a false and fictitious record. Smirnov's attorneys said in a statement they requested an immediate hearing on his detention and will again push for his release. Prosecutors say Smirnov falsely told his FBI handler that executives from the Ukrainian energy company Burisma paid President Biden and Hunter Biden $5 million each around 2015. The claim became central to the Republican impeachment inquiry of the President Biden in Congress. Republicans in the House have decided to continue with their impeachment hearing despite losing their primary witness. KBBG temporarily off the air to reassess future of the radio station. Story written by Maria Cooper. Dateline Waterloo. There may be radio silence, but the heart of the city is still beating, according to the head of Afro-American Community Broadcasting, Incorporated, Corey Holmes, executive director at KBBG FM 88.1 recognizes people are concerned the station has been off the air since November, but equated the break to halftime at a football game. Quote, KBBG is here to stay. It's not going anywhere, he said. I'm going to fight and do everything I can to make sure that we are coming out of this locker room and we're going to play for longer and fight harder than we ever had before on this field, unquote the black-owned and operated public radio station founded by Jimmy Porter, began broadcasting in 1978. It was started to give a voice to Waterloo's African-American community with entertainment and news programming. But Holmes and his colleagues are finding that the airways are not as relevant as they were nearly 50 years ago. In 2020, the station laid off all of its paid staff, Without at least two paid staff members, it is not eligible for federal funds due to rules set by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In 2021, Dupaco Community Credit Union moved for foreclosure on the building at 918 Newell Street. However, Holmes said the decision to go off the air was not because of finances, but rather to regroup and go to the drawing board. Quote, there are so many different platforms now in 2024 to stream music, he said. Radio alone is not necessarily something that is just outright sustainable, unquote. The station is looking into television and broadcasting, advertising, and providing art services. Holmes said he is working with local and out-of-state investors and developers to see what is feasible. He reiterated that the radio format is definitely not going anywhere, because it was what KBBG was founded on and is a staple of black history. Quote, KBBG was pretty much one of those groundbreaking facilities in the community that was able to reach out to everyone, he said. 
It was able to bring unity. It was able to bring peace, able to bring love. Quote, KBBG presented a voice that was not present at the time. You know, at the time, it filled a void for many people. Holmes did not provide a date when the station expects to be back on the air. <laughs> Planning begins for Sturgis Parade, Kids Way, Craft Fair, events around Overman. Story filed by Andy Malone and begins with a photograph of Cedar Falls Mayor Rob Green as he presents astronaut Rija Chari with the key to the city during the Sturgis Falls celebration on June 23rd of 2023. And the participants are standing on a stage within a band shell, an American flag in the background, and they're standing under a circular tent-like structure. And there's quite a few people there for this award presentation. And the astronaut Raja Cherry is wearing his flight uniform. Dateline Cedar Falls. It's on at Overman Park. The familiar faces of the newly formed Sturgis Falls Overman Entertainment Committee may be acknowledging they're starting from ground zero, but sound like they haven't missed a beat in the early goings of planning. The goal was clear at the last meeting Wednesday, sitting in an intimate circle with laptops and paper in a small room at St. Luke's Church, to throw together the 2024 rendition with no reductions amid the rushed effort. And now, listeners, we'd just like to take a moment to remind you you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 23rd on IRIS. That's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this announcement. If you're struggling with your mental health, there's something Your Life Iowa wants you to know. It's all right to feel sad, to be angry, to feel depressed, to be anxious, to feel lonely. Something else that's definitely all right? Getting help for your mental health. When you're ready, Your Life Iowa is here for you 24-7. Find support at yourlifeiowa.org. Together, we can make everything all right. Brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. And now we turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from Storm Lake Times Pilot, written by editor Art Cullen. Vilsack's Lament Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack complained last week of getting battered about left and right from one day to the next. It can be lonely at the top, so you rope-a-dope your way along, trying to stay afoot. He referred to a protester Tuesday at the Ag Outlook Forum, who thinks USDA is a corporate sellout, and to banging his head against the wall Wednesday with knuckleheads on the House Agriculture Committee who can't muster a farm bill on time. The Ag Census reports that Iowa farm sizes grew along with net income, through 2022. Dairy and livestock sectors continued to consolidate. Just a few players dominate the industry. Young farmers can't hold a foothold. Soil losses are frightening. Pork exports are expected to eclipse poultry in 10 years, as Asian demand grows exponentially, 
We can't handle the manure we already have. Just take a sniff outside and don't dare dip in the water. Vilsack's lament comes somewhat from his own making. The former Iowa governor believes that, quote, climate smart agriculture built around resiliency and sustainability will lead to diversity in production. He also understands that money greases political wheels. When Biden took office, Vilsack lined up all the big players in agribusiness for his Climate Smart Initiative. Cargill, Tyson, ADM, everybody who's anybody. They issued joint statements with the support of the House and Senate Agriculture Committee leaders. It hasn't worked. The House halted the Farm Bill over food stamps. Funding is frozen. At the committee hearing last week, Vilsack was under fire for fear that climate action will heist property rights. The message from the corporations to the Capitol to get smart on climate got a wink and a no reply. Nor has the USDA climate smart money, directed by Vilsack so far, some $20 billion, made an appreciable difference in Iowa surface water or air quality. Young farmers are not getting a boot on the ladder to success. The integrators get theirs, while folks in the Storm Lake get ballooning water bills as our wells are sucked dry. Vilsack thought he could bring the Republicans along. They would rather fight than eat. They can't decide on the border, on Ukraine, not even on a farm bill that Farmers Union and Cargill could settle for. Perhaps a pivot is in order. The farm bill architecture got us into this fix. Give the Freedom Caucus what it wants, rip it up, and see where the pieces land. Tell Big Ag to stuff it. Say to hell with subsidizing huge corporations with money that is supposed to get grass strips planted along the raccoon. Quit indirectly subsidizing pork exports to China at the expense of Iowa's soil base. Tell them they don't need our money to build a CO2 pipeline. Use executive authority to enroll every eligible applicant into the Conservation Stewardship Program and the Conservation Reserve Program, both popular and suppressed. Tie crop insurance to stewardship. The Ag Census chronicles the failure of the existing farm bill architecture. The House hearing last week illustrates the failure of the Vilsack corporate-based political strategy to prop up its sagging frame. With Speaker Johnson at the rostrum, how can we see a way clear to a farm bill before the November election? It's nigh to impossible. Wouldn't it be novel if Vilsack went full bore for Iowa, for clean water and air, for independent livestock production, for open and transparent markets, for healthy and diverse rural communities where you can make a decent living? Iowa does not have that now. Not, at least, from a Sac or Pocahontas County perspective. The reason to send all those Iowa boys to Washington is so they can deliver some of that bacon home to where it's fattened and sliced. What about Storm Lake's failing wells brought on by agri-industrial demand? Who pays for that? What about our lost soil? Where is the accounting? The big boys may be flush, but what about the rest of us? Why should our cheap corn be used to undermine the very foundation of Iowa, its soil, 
water, and people. Biden could win Iowa with a campaign like that. Vilsack once did. Production agriculture is hanging its friend Vilsack out to dry politically. Agribusiness claims to support resiliency and security, but it funds the Ag Committee that fails to produce a farm bill. It lets the knuckleheads box Vilsack around. It will never miss a meal if he tells all of them to sit and spin on this in defense of Iowa's values. That's what we need. Vilsack is capable of it if he could summon the courage of his stated vision. Union leader says GOP out to kill organized labor in Iowa. This opinion was written by Art Cullen of the Storm Lake Times Pilot. Republican legislators may be in store for more than they bargained for by trying to eviscerate public employee rights. Storm Lake native Jesse Case, leader of Teamsters Local 238 in Cedar Rapids, the state's largest union local with a presence in 83 counties, last week called for protests and rolling strikes against legislation that would emasculate collective bargaining. Quote, we're going to take the fight to them, to their town, to their county, to their farm, to their business, Case said in a prepared video posted to YouTube on Thursday. Quote, we're going to have rolling strikes across the state of Iowa. We're going to have concerted activity in business across the state of Iowa. We're going to have protests at businesses across the state of Iowa. And we're going to shut down business in the state of Iowa if they shut down unions. Quote, we're not going to let them burn down the House of Labor, Case declared. We're not going down without a fight. The Teamsters object to a bill sponsored by Senator Adrian Dickey, Republican from Packwood, and Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, that would require public employees to submit a list of their employees to the state when a contract is about to expire. If the employer doesn't provide the employee list, the union would have to sue the employer in district court. Kay said that means his union would have to sue up to 100 municipalities and school districts as their contracts come up. Case noted the collective bargaining law passed a half-century ago with a Democratic legislature and a Republican governor. It worked. Seven years ago, Republicans required unions to recertify with member elections a year ahead of their contract expirations in an attempt to gut labor. Case noted, quote, it didn't work, he said. In those elections, 98% of members voted to recertify with their unions. Case said it produced an unintended result. It strengthened union resolve and bonds among members. This latest attempt would end collective bargaining in Iowa, Case maintains. He will go all out to inflict as much pain as possible on hostile legislators. He is innovative. He got involved with labor by putting union stickers on pork going out of the non-union Storm Lake IBP plant, which got him fired and set on a path of organizing. He should not be underestimated. Legislators might get a bullhorn in their ear for breakfast. He has been known to do that. The Teamsters have been quietly organizing across the state, conducting surveys and focus groups, 
to determine what issues are most important to working folks in rural areas. Cases operating deliberately on roughly a five-year timeline to turn Iowa's politics back to issues that matter. Wages, rural hospitals closing, deteriorating roads, and weakening public education. Now he is getting louder. He notes the Teamsters represent police, waste haulers, water plant employees, and school bus drivers, not to mention those truck drivers. He can wreak a lot of havoc, and he isn't prone to idle threats. Most dangerous, Case knows what people care about. When he calls for a strike, he means it. He has friends. Republicans are blundering in their overreach. They continue to fumble around with area education agencies, which will cause no end to their headaches with special ed parents. They continue to harass libraries, which is a no-win in Iowa politics. There is no dispute in Alta that it shall have a comprehensive library despite the legislature. They continue to harass gay and transgender citizens, threaten private colleges like Buena Vista over phantom terror sympathies among students from places like Galva, and proscribe a full accounting of history in high school social studies class. These things are not necessarily popular. Dickey and Schultz are picking an unnecessary fight at precisely the time organized labor is enjoying its highest public approval in 60 years. They're helping Case in his quixotic crusade to organize Iowa back into sanity. The Moms for Liberty got thrashed. Moms for Special Ed are inside the heads of suburban Republican legislators. Local library dames are putting the heat on their representatives. Republicans are not so in tune with Governor Kim Reynolds or each other right now. The call from Teamsters for rolling strikes could set some tinder ablaze. These are generally white guys in trucks, which is supposed to be the GOP base. The Republicans are alienating them when they don't need to. This next editorial was written by Charles M. Blow and appeared in the New York Times. Alabama's IVF ruling shows our slide toward theocracy. If you don't think this country is sliding toward theocracy, you're not paying attention. The drumbeat of incidents moving us ever closer to the seemingly inescapable future is so steady and frequent that we've developed outrage fatigue. We've grown numb. For instance, on Tuesday, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children and that destruction of those embryos, even by accident, is subject to the state's wrongful death of a minor act. In his concurring opinion, the Chief Justice of the Court, Tom Parker, wrote, quote, Even before birth, all human beings bear the image of God, and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing His glory, unquote. The ruling could mean less access to reproductive care in Alabama if specialists in the field of in vitro fertilization simply choose to practice in states that don't threaten their efforts. There have been cases before in which embryos were destroyed as a result of negligence, but the Alabama decision significantly ups the ante. It essentially turns crypto-preservation tanks into frozen nurseries. 
The idea is absurd and unscientific. It is, instead, tied to a religious crusade to downgrade the personhood of women by conferring personhood on frozen embryos. I called Sean Tipton, the chief advocacy and policy officer at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, who told me, quote, one of the points in the abortion debate is, is it really about abortion or is it about controlling women and controlling sex? And this clearly exposes the idea that it's not just about abortion, he said, quote, there is no more pro-life medical treatment available ever than in vitro fertilization, and this decision clearly threatens the ability for that to continue, unquote. Control of women's bodies is the end game, and some religious conservatives won't stop until that goal is achieved. For that reason, intervening victories, like the overturning of Roe v. Wade, will never be seen as enough. They will only intensify a blinding sense of righteousness. There is an array of reproductive rights cases percolating around the country that could make their way to the Supreme Court, the same court that Donald Trump brags about transforming, having appointed a third of its justices. The legal and political battles over these issues are far from over, and the preservation of women's remaining rights is far from certain. The only thing that seems to be temporarily stopping congressional Republicans from pushing for a national abortion ban after years of arguing that their goal was merely to allow individual states to make their own laws, is that the issue of reproductive choice is an electoral loser for their party. But now Trump is reportedly talking privately about supporting a national 16-week abortion ban, with some exceptions. This is what many of his supporters want, and many of them believe he has been singularly chosen by God to advance their theocratic aims. It's one of the reasons that they overlook Trump's glaring flaws and the fact that Trump himself is not a particularly religious man. It's worth noting that many of the right's efforts, including on the issue of abortion, are led by men who want births but can't give birth, reflecting an imbalance between power and expectation that may carry over to a younger generation. A fascinating new report from Pew Research found that although men and women 18 to 34, quote, are about equally likely to say they want to get married, 57% of young men said they want children one day, compared to just 45% of young women. Abortion is just one front on which this religious fight is being waged. As of last week, the ACLU was tracking 437 anti-LGBTQ bills being considered by state legislatures. Then there's the alarming effort by conservative groups to transform and reshape the federal government in ways that curtail American freedoms, but also, according to Politico, to bring Christian nationalist ideas into a second Trump administration. To those advancing these ideas, the will of God counts more than the will of the American people, even when Americans object or disagree. Reportedly, one idea among various proposals 
is invoking the Insurrection Act on Trump's first day back in office to facilitate deployment of the military against protesters. We are perilously close to all this becoming a reality, potentially aided and abetted by disaffected Democratic voters. I'm talking about many Democrats with single-issue objections to President Biden, whether it's opposition to his position on the Israel-Hamas war, disappointments about the overall state of the economy, or concerns about the president's age, who haven't committed to supporting his re-election, who don't seem to see that in November the country faces one of the most existential electoral decisions it has ever faced. If these Democrats decide to punish Biden by sitting it out, they could wind up performing one of the greatest acts of self-emulation in recent political history, abandoning an administration committed to the protection of democracy and possibly allowing the ascension of a theocracy intent on destroying the very freedoms that progressives cherish. The Political Failure of Bidenomics by David Brooks. This appeared in the New York Times. After Hillary Clinton's defeat in 2016, most sensible Democrats realized they had a problem. The party was hemorrhaging support from the white working class. More than 60% of Americans over 25 do not have a four-year college degree. It's very hard to win national elections without them. So, in 2020, the Democrats did something sensible. For the first time in 36 years, they nominated a presidential candidate who did not have a degree from the Ivy League. Joe Biden won the White House and immediately pursued an ambitious agenda to support the working class. The economic results have been fantastic. During Biden's term, the U.S. economy has created 10.8 million production and non-supervisory jobs, including nearly 800,000 manufacturing jobs and 774,000 construction jobs. Wages are rising faster for people at the lower ends of the wage scale than for people at the higher ends. A study by the economist Robert Pollan and others estimates that 61% of the jobs created by the infrastructure law Biden championed won't require a college degree. The same applies for 58% of the jobs created by the Inflation Reduction Act and 44% of those created by the CHIPS Act. A study from the Brookings Institution found that since 2021, the new laws have directed almost $82 billion in strategic sector investment to the nation's employment-distressed counties. As a result of the private investment set in motion by Biden policies, we are in the middle of an employment, manufacturing, and productivity boom in many places that had previously been left behind, and benefiting the sorts of workers who had been hit hard by deindustrialization. But what have been the political effects? Have these huge spending programs increased working class support for the Democratic Party? Are the Democrats reclaiming their mantle as the party of the working class? The answer so far is, unfortunately, a resounding no. Biden's economic policies have done little to help the Democratic Party politically. 
In fact, the party continues to lose working-class support. In a recent NBC poll, voters say they trust Donald Trump more than Biden to handle the economy by a 22-point margin, the largest advantage any candidate has had on this issue in the history of NBC polling going back to 1992. Some of the loss of support is happening among some of the party's historically most loyal constituencies. A recent Gallup poll measured how many Americans identify with the Democratic and Republican parties. Over the last three years, the Democrats' lead among black Americans has shrunk by 19 points. Among Hispanics, the Democratic lead shrunk by 15 points. The Gallup poll also shows that the diploma divide is still widening. Those with postgraduate degrees are increasingly turning Democratic. Those without college degrees are increasingly Republican. Franklin Roosevelt built the New Deal majorities by using government to support workers. Biden tried to do the same. While his policies have worked economically, they have not worked politically. What's going on? The fact that over the past few decades and across Western democracies have been in the middle of a seismic political realignment, with more educated voters swinging left and less educated voters swinging right. This realignment is more about culture and identity than it is about economics. College-educated voters have tended to congregate in big cities and lead very different lives than voters without a college degree. College-educated voters are also much more likely to focus their attention on cultural issues like abortion and LGBTQ rights, and they are much more socially liberal than non-college-educated voters. Finally, less educated voters feel morally judged for being socially backward. An analysis of more than 65,000 people across 36 countries by the Dutch scholar Joachim van Noord found that people who do not belong to the new elite are not only united by economic insecurity, but also by, quote, feelings of misrecognition, that is, the extent to which people have the feeling that they do not play a meaningful role in society, that they possess a stigmatized identity that is looked down upon, unquote. If there's hope for Democrats, it's found in people like Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, who works strenuously to reduce social distance between Democrats and the working class. As the analyst Roy Texaria pointed out in his The Liberal Patriot substack, Fetterman has gone against progressive orthodoxy on immigration, fossil fuels, and Israel. He shows his strengths by tilting against party elites. Similarly, the Democrat Tom Susie won back his Long Island House seat by playing up issues like controlling the border and fighting crime. Joe Biden has done a masterful job of holding together the diverse Democratic coalition. But in order to win working-class votes, you probably have to show some degree of independence from the educated elites who lead it. Fire reported at Waterloo Apartment Building. Story filed by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Waterloo. 
Authorities are investigating a fire that broke out in a Waterloo apartment building Thursday afternoon. We have a photograph here showing the smoke damage at a window on the top floor of this three-story structure. Residents evacuated the building at 1047 Langley Road without injury, according to officials with the Waterloo Fire Rescue. It wasn't immediately clear if anyone was living in the third-floor apartment where the fire started. Firefighters were able to stop the flames from reaching other areas of the building, and the cause of the blaze hasn't yet been determined. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 23rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can listen to a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS. Iowa's first and only radio reading service.